just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast, in which we say things you won't hear on the BBC. I'm Damien Thompson. An unusual episode today in which we talk about mental health, specifically the mainstream church's lamentable failure to say anything interesting about the mental stresses and strains that people in the modern world increasingly experience. My guest is Professor Stephen Bullivant, who is the country's leading expert on British patterns of religious affiliation. He knows about mental health, not least because three years ago he had a devastating attack of clinical depression, just as his career was taking off. It's taken off again, but he talks very frankly about what happened to him. But we also discuss why leading clergy, rather than addressing the things that really worry us, choose to bore the pants off us instead. They've got very little to say about mental health except, perhaps, to blame it on Brexit. It's probably the most wide-ranging discussion we've ever had in, what, 55 episodes of Holy Smoke. Professor Stephen Bullivant, we're going to talk about problems of mental health, which may be increasing in society, I think they are, and the church's failure to address them. That's all the mainstream churches, Anglican, Catholic... Methodist, Presbyterian, whatever. I'm very critical of them because I think generally that the churches spend an awful lot of time talking about things they know nothing whatsoever about, such as, well, the Vatican and the Amazon Basin or the Church of England and Brexit and unemployment and they set themselves up as experts or counsellors or whatever and it's all complete hot air and a waste of time. And they don't spend their time talking about... Mental health problems, uh, under which umbrella you find all sorts of problems to do with anxiety, internet addiction, depression. Loneliness. Loneliness, which is... I I was interviewing this African bishop very recently, and he said the biggest problem is loneliness. And this is a man who's threatened by warlords, and he says the biggest problem is loneliness. And actually, I remember somebody telling me a newspaper editor telling me many, many years ago, what's the biggest social problem in Britain today? And I sort of floundered about, and he said, loneliness. What do we mean by loneliness? Well, I mean, there's a sense in which we're more connected than ever, or we can be, and yet the depth of these interactions are often much more simplistic, much more fleeting. And also, I think this, and this is true of of the the churches particularly, not all the religions, but the churches, that... We've got ageing congregations and, and fewer. And whereas churches in the past used to be genuine social communities, you know, the life of a, a village might be the Anglican church or the chapel or whatever. It's not anymore. You don't even know people at church. It's always been the case that going to church has been sort of a good predictor of all sorts of mental health positive indicators. Um, but that's one of the arguments, is that well, just, that's just because these are people who are getting out there and being sociable. Exactly. Yeah, um, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, and I'm not always sure that's the case anymore. 
No, I'll, I'll give you an example. I live opposite a church, and I think it's a good church, and I think it's certainly at the moment got a very good pastor, as they call them in America. We call them parish priests. But in the course of many years living opposite this church, and I do mean right opposite this church, and certainly until Father Keith arrived, the number of pastoral visits equaled zero. Maybe that's because they didn't want to come round and listen to me bang on about my hobby horses. But also I don't know anybody, or barely know anybody, from that parish, because it's not necessary to know anybody from that parish, because it's, it's kind of local and kind of isn't. Increasingly, parishes are gathered congregations, as they say, yep. where there will be a gang who know each other and then other people don't know each other. And so, as a refuge for the lonely, churches are no longer the resource that they used to be. No, except if you go to Hillsong, for example, in the middle of London, or Holy Trinity Brompton, or the Oratory, and you're in certain... If you become in a certain kind of niche then you find that there are strong communities. And certainly within a lots of the first and second generation immigrant groups, I mean, it's always been the case that immigration and religiosity and community all get tied up together. I was up in Scotland doing some research and every little town has a, a Presbyterian chapel that's now a Weatherspoon, you know. But you go to little churches and they are sent of nowhere, frankly. Um, and you turn up on a Sunday afternoon at about three o'clock and there's like 500 Carolyn Christians there, families, all generations, five, six hundred of them. They've been there all day and they're there for Bible. They're there for prayer. They're there for mass. They're there for whatever. But they're there for everything else as well. They're there for dance classes. They're there for language classes. They're there just to hang out with. But that's not... Friends and family. That's not the normal state of affairs. Absolutely not. Absolutely So what not. you've talked about, you've got a Carolyn community. Now, there's a good reason why they stick together, because yeah. they want to meet people from their own community. And then you mentioned Hillsong, you mentioned HDB, you mentioned the Oratory. These are congregations, in many cases, where people have chosen, yeah, deliberately chosen, exactly. to join this church as what you might call a lifestyle choice. Yeah. It's a bit like somebody... You know, joining... CrossFit. Joining CrossFit, yeah. which I hadn't heard about Some until a couple of years ago, but was, is a fitness movement with quasi-religious overtones. Certainly, yeah. people talk about it in a rather evangelical way. So once people decide to join something, become part of community, Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, which I belong to for years, it's unsurprising that you find there a sense of social cohesion. But what you don't find is the sort of support for people with mental health problems that they might find as a matter of course yeah. in their town or village. You go to the local, local vicar, you go to the local pastor, you go to the local rabbi, perhaps. Yeah. Because yeah, these the structures landlord, go yeah. to the local landlord, yeah. indeed. Because these structures have collapsed. Yeah. And actually, even the structure of pub life is beginning to collapse, well, it I is, think. It is. The, the, the numbers of pub closures or pubs being taken over and done up and fancified and gentrified and no longer really appealing to the local community. These are huge structural yeah. changes in the social landscape. But one thing that these new structures aren't particularly good at, at dealing with are the 
stresses and strains that ordinary people encounter in everyday life. And I think we've got to have a little bit of a discussion about what we mean when we say that many people in society are experiencing acute mental health problems and that religion is no longer perhaps the resource that it was. And first of all, you do have to grapple with this phrase, mental health problems. Yeah. Because it's a bit of jargon in some ways. It's used as an excuse. Somebody like Peter Hitchens would argue that it's basically a synonym for self-pity. It's used to make self-pity respectable and to excuse all manner of bad behaviour. And I've been sceptical about it. I remember laughing a lot when somebody on Twitter said, somebody should tell celebrities it's okay not to have a mental health problem because every celebrity has their sort of accessory, their mental... They have their charity and they have their mental health problem that they confess to. You're very brave in speaking out about it. They're very brave in speaking out about it, absolutely. And other celebrities applaud them for being very brave. It's usually after they've been done for drunken driving or or they've ended up in rehab and the, the tabloids have found out about it. But I'm being cynical and suggesting that I think that there isn't such a thing as a mental health problem, whereas, in fact, it's a bit like pornography, which the hardcore pornography, which that, that Supreme Court judge said he couldn't define, but he knew it when he saw it. Everybody laughed because it was an old man with notoriously bad eyesight. But you get my point. Instinctively, we know there are such things as mental health problems, even if we're perhaps a bit wary of the way the phrase is thrown around. And I've experienced them myself, and you have... Absolutely. Yourself. Absolutely. And in fact, we're, you know, you get these mental health awareness days. The last one was a few weeks ago, I think. What is maybe. a mental health... I can guess what a mental health awareness day well, it's is. Where but you I'm, have, I don't got, think I'd want to go to well, one. No, it's, I think it, it might endanger it, my mental health. It, it's... It's when you have hashtag that says Mental Health Awareness Day, basically. And, you know, I guess, it, I guess the positive thing is that it ends up being a fundraising moment for various mental health charities and that kind of stuff. The trouble is, is that on the one hand, I'd be quite happy to have, you know, a day with the luxury of not being aware of my mental health, frankly. And the other thing, and we had this with our daughter, who we, we think is going to be diagnosed with, with Asperger's. Or, well, it's not called Asperger's anymore because... It's not, because Asperger's has been moved on to, Asperger's has been moved on to the autism That's spectrum, right. at least in DSM-5. So the fury of many Asperger's people who are saying, I'm not autistic, how dare you? But Dr Asperger, or Asperger, was a big Nazi as well. So yes, it's, he was, it's very yes. Yes. problematic, as we yes. say now. Yes. Um, anyway, they had a lovely thing on paper at school. Everyone would go in to school wearing something yellow for Mental Health Awareness Day, and it was called Hello, hashtag Hello Yellow. And of course, for, for that's our, lovely. You think? Is. I think it's extremely creepy. Well, basically, teaching children <laughs> to identify mental health problems in themselves at such a young age is just asking for trouble. It's was. asking for them to think, "Oh, I haven't got a mental health problem." But my friend Sarah has, so um, what's mine going to be? Well, and also, like, our daughter, who struggles with all sorts of things, the the amount of additional anxiety and stress and heartache this having to find something yellow to wear was just off the scale. So, like, for, you know, for the children who actually do struggle with certain things, Mental Health Awareness Day can be a real day of hell, frankly. But you're right about that that thing about, you know, mental health problems is just kind of a an excuse for, I don't know, weak-willed or... I, I have sympathy for that when I'm actually in it. Not when I'm out of it, because when I'm out of it, I'm mentally well enough to have some perspective. But, but when you're in it, when you you're think in it, you tell yourself, I'm just... Lazy. Lazy, I'm just, This yes. is just... 
dead beat. I mean, you know. What about people who are authentic, like me, who are authentically lazy, but also might have mental health problems? Oh, are they trouble. the same thing? I sometimes tell myself when I'm being massively lazy. Yeah that this is actually the symptom of an underlying depression, which is quite comforting. So I'm doing the opposite to you, in a way. But But what is a mental health problem? Let's get this out of the way. And I hear you're looking troubled, even by the question. Well, I mean, I I can only talk from my own experience. So tell us about your own experience. My own experience was, you know, I have small children, and, you know, it's, it's a very nice job in many respects, but it's busy. And, you know, I'm stress and tiredness and I know what that feels like and then about three years ago three and a half years ago I was driving home from work it's a long way on the motorways and it was just as if something snapped and I wasn't even sure I could get home safely I just almost didn't have the motivation to turn the wheel of the car I mean it was it was just like all my mental energy it wasn't you know it wasn't feeling tired I know what that's like small children it was just mental fatigue, like my motivation to do anything, to lift my head had just drained and just gone. And this, you know, I got home, I, I did get home, basically just lay down and, you know, could barely move, you know, and even to the point, of, I mean, I remember once, and I don't know if that was that day or, or soon after, but it was kind of like the remote control was in my hand of the television and I couldn't summon the mental energy to press a button to change the channel, even though I was watching God knows what. But on the other hand, you think, well, if the room was on fire or if one of the children falls off something and starts crying, then I, I can get up and do it. If I have to go and get the girls from school, I can do it. It's, so you, you get into this thing where is it, is it just me being deadbeat and lazy? There's nothing physically stopping me doing any of these things. It's, it's pure will. And, and I should be able to pull my socks up and, and go and do this. But you, you just can't. And I have months of this. And it was so boring. I think this is one of the difficulties that Christianity doesn't always speak very well about this. Because on the one hand, you either say, well, it, you just got to pray about it and have faith. And, and, that. and actually, that's, I find it very difficult to pray or even go to church or do anything when I'm feeling like that. Or you get this kind of romanticising of it as the dark night of the soul and this kind of like spiritual purification. It's kind of St. John of the Cross. Well, that's interesting fine. because... You're describing a sort of catatonic depression, yeah. I suppose it is. I suppose it might be a yeah. clinical depression, but I'm familiar with it. Oh. You can't even summon up the energy to turn off the television. Yeah. I'm thoroughly familiar with that feeling, and it keeps me in bed sometimes yeah. for days at a time. Yeah. Well, not quite, but it means I get up at five in the afternoon or something like that, and that causes all sorts of problems. So I'm familiar with that. But actually, it's hard to romanticise that. Yeah. Because it's not the soul-wrenching depression. No. Well, it's not, it's not a dark night of the soul. It's a sort of dark snooze of the soul. Yeah, I always thought it's a cloud of uncoping. <laughs> but I seem to spend about four months sitting, eating crunchy nut cornflakes and watching old episodes of Mork and Mindy. And that was about it. Morka Mindy. Yeah, I used to watch it. Uh, you know Morka Mindy. I do. You probably watched it when it first came out. Morka Mindy, which starred a man, starred a man who committed suicide. Well, this suicide. was the other thing. This was who the other striking. You'd be watching this, and you know he's obviously you know coping well. But in the back of your mind, you were like, 
Were you aware, as you were watching it, that Robin Williams had committed suicide? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, he probably did so. Poor man, because he'd been diagnosed with a, a terrible form of dementia yeah. that he knew was going to lead to the most appalling agony. So it's not necessarily a standard sort of mental health problem he was actually facing. Yeah. Uh, he was facing degenerative yeah. mental illness of the type that would kill him. So he killed himself, and I can understand that. Really can. The frightening thing for me was um and this was i had a period of you know feeling awful but just deciding that you know i can i can get through this and you know it takes a while for medication to kind of get the right levels and you know i'll work were excellent actually were, were brilliant about sort of trying to help and accommodate and i thought you know i can kind of push through i've got too much on i kind of park mm. things for six months and hope i get better and then i got to the stage and i can remember very vividly when i just suddenly felt that but I'd got to a point when I didn't quite trust myself not to do something irreversible and the way I describe this is that you know you know about people who commit suicide you might know people who commit suicide and and, and you, you know you might have every sympathy every empathy you might have you know have every kind of um feeling for all the different mental and physical and emotional reasons that might drive someone to that at the very extreme but I never kind of felt it as something conceivable that I, you know, you just couldn't imagine ever being mm. anywhere near that. Um, and I got to this stage when it wasn't that I was kind of very near, but it no longer felt completely inconceivable. And I didn't trust my mind not to step off a train platform, you know, in, in a moment of madness. And, and that was really scary, really, really scary. And in a way, I knew you were going through this. And in a way, learning that you were suffering a period of acute mental distress or depression or whatever it was, because you told me, yeah, I, I thought of you as an almost uniquely well-balanced person, an incredibly productive and brilliant <laughs> scholar with a young family, a brilliant career. And for it to happen to Stephen Bullivant brought home the reality of mental health problems in society today. Because for it to happen to Damien Thompson would surprise <laughs> nobody. They'd say, well, Damien's neurotic. But I'd never heard anybody say Stephen's neurotic. Perhaps I just don't know you well enough. But I'd never heard anybody say Stephen's neurotic. I know people who are naturally neurotic and they have depressive episodes or they have episodes of extreme anxiety. And yeah. I think, well, that's basically just an acute version of the p person they naturally are. Yeah. But when it happened to you... And you were immobilised and away yeah. from work for so long, I thought, bloody hell, people really are having problems coping. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. were, I know. You had taken on an awful lot, and I do actually yeah. think, personally, it's a mistake when people so live, live so far away from their yeah, well, work. Yeah, at the minute, I work from home a lot, which is partly because of that, actually, um, and partly just because of the pattern of my work changed. But no, long commutes were, were a killer. Um, bad choice of words, maybe, but... Because also, in order to miss the traffic, in order to miss the only 25, you get up really early. You know, get up at like half four or five. To go in early enough to miss the traffic. To then come home early enough to miss it the other way. And the nice thing is that then you're back in time to have, you know, being from the north, tea at 5pm on the table. Um, tea at 5pm yeah, on the table? That's, that's the time you have your Really? Supper. Yeah. 
five. Oh, does not have a slightly postmodern quality? You're doing that now. <laughs> well, Come not. on. Well, we live in North. We live in rural North Oxfordshire. We're North Oxfordshire. We're both from Lancashire. Yes. Yes. Uh, right. And yeah, yes. probably. I know. Bread and dripping. Yes. And uh, but but no. But the, the other thing we talked about this before about celebrities, and I wrote something for one of the um, Christian magazines, basically about how boring being mentally and how it wasn't this kind of romantic spiritual kind of battle with demons or anything like that it was just boring it's boring boring. i think if you don't i i don't find myself battling when i'm going through a a difficult i don't find myself battling with demons so much perhaps i did in the past when i was drinking i find myself battling with self-hatred yeah Acute guilt. Yeah, and just at the thought that I'm messing up my life like this. And also, like, and you know, my wife and I both had various struggles, but just this kind of like, you know, you're not pulling your weight, and therefore other people have to pick up the slack, whether that's at home or whether that's at work. Because obviously, if you suddenly go off work, someone else has to do that stuff, right? There's stuff that can be just punted into the long grass, and there's stuff that needs doing, and so it all falls on everyone else. So you kind of, you know, feel awful. Um, So can can we just? Talk for a little bit about the fact that the church is not only a, not a natural resource for people suffering from this sort of problem, but that actually they're not very good at addressing it anyway. Because every time I hear a clergyman talk in public, they seem to be talking about things they don't know about. The Archbishop of Canterbury wittering on about Brexit or whatever. And if they talk about mental health, they use public sector jargon rather than talking in a way that grabs you, rather than talking in a way that thinks, I want to hear more from this person because this person might help me. So perhaps the slack is taken up by all these therapeutic gurus who are invading every aspect of life. But let's talk about the failure of the churches for a bit. The churches generally seem to be stuck in platitude land. They reach for the nearest cliché. They're rather pleased with themselves. It's no surprise that people don't identify with either these clergy or those communities. Well, I think that given how ready celebrities are to talk about mental health problems or addiction or all sorts of darknesses that they battle with, it is actually striking that I can't... I'm not saying there aren't any. I can't think of any mainstream religious leaders who come out and talk about their own battles with depression or addiction or... And maybe that's sort of to do with the role... But actually, I think there'd be an authenticity to that because we mentioned it before, but I do... I mean, I think clergy, the loneliness, levels of alcoholism, all sorts of stuff, I mean... Very much, but first, you've raised something interesting, which is that church leaders don't talk about it in the way that celebrities do. Here's one reason that might be the case. The sort of people who become bishops or cardinals or whatever these days tend to be, in my experience, rather colourless and defensive characters who are very unwilling to reveal anything of themselves lest it damage their career prospects. You know, Stephen, what I'm talking about. I've heard you. You know, it's not just... I've heard you too. Bishops are bland. Bishops are boring. I did a podcast episode on why bishops are so boring. Yeah, I I read it. They're not going to talk about their mental health issues, even if they have them, which I suspect they do, because they're worried about their career prospects. Yeah, and I guess you... Probably like in lots of fields, you know, you get promoted because you haven't been the person to rock the boat, to haven't been exactly. to have I mean, can you imagine mental Vin health Ni- meltdowns? Can you imagine so Vin Nichols talking about mental health problems he's had? I don't know if he's had them or not, no. but can you imagine him talking about it? I can no. imagine Justin Welby talking about it, but, but in a rather civilised but boring way. <laughs> I can imagine the Pope talking about it just about, I suppose, behind closed doors. 
perhaps yeah. rather volubly, employing the colourful language he's supposed to. But generally speaking, it's not something that church leaders address. No, but is that a generational thing? Because church leaders tend to be older than us. Could be a generational thing. Um, so and... I like the Dan Ars, that's very nice, Stephen. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. And, and you know... But the other thing is... You know, I think it is, it is partly a generational thing. Can you imagine? But it's also partly the fact that they're very, very dull mediocrities who are frightened of rocking the boat. So well, it's a mixture of that's, that's because one of you. celebrities who talk about... Increasingly, celebrities who talk about their mental health issues. I mean, look, Stephen Fry must be the same age as many cardinals <laughs> these days. Yeah, that's true. You know, he must be. He's just as dull sometimes, I think. But anyway, that's not to say that they don't have mental health issues, even if they're not prepared to talk to people in their ever-shrinking congregations who have them. Because I think being a clergyman is sometimes the sort of job that, like so many other jobs in modern society, can, I say, threaten your mental health. And I'm falling back on this phrase, mental health, but turn you a bit mad. Well, I, I think it can be very isolating, very lonely. You'll know clergy, I certainly do, who have had serious mental breakdowns. So many. Not had. So many. Remotely like the kind of support. I mean, I, I knew one who didn't even, you know, he didn't get paid by his diocese while he was having it. I mean, he was just kind of like cast out and really badly treated. I've known so many priests with one problem or another, and sometimes it might be cancer, it might be Alzheimer's, it might be this, that or the other, and they, they hear nothing from their bishops, yeah. which I think tells you something about the dreadful careerists who become bishops. I suppose it must be a different experience for Anglican clergy vicars whether they're men or women, and for Catholic priests, because they have spouses and Catholic priests don't. Now, I remember having an interesting conversation with a priest who's also a psychotherapist. I was writing my book about addiction, it was years ago, wondering why so many priests got caught with pornography. So it wasn't actually talking about predator priests, it was talking about priests and porn. And he said, they're living, we always use this phrase, rattling around in these huge, great presbyteries that were built for Four yep. priests and a housekeeper, and they've got nothing. And he said, they'll do a wedding on a Saturday, and they'll see the couple married with all their happy anticipations and all their joyful relations. And they'll be invited to the merrymaking afterwards as a guest of honour, but also as an outsider. And then they'll go back to their presbytery and rattle around in it. And in the past, they would have reached for the bottle, and now they go to their computer screen and they look at porn, mm. said this priest. And I find that an entirely believable scenario. Yeah, I, I can understand it. And when they get into that spiral, how do they get out? Do they talk to other priests? Priests, deanery meetings? Do I would say that they don't talk hang to... Hang out? I would, say they... that, I would say that they definitely don't talk to other priests unless those other priests happen to be friends of theirs. Yeah. Because I've met so many priests and actually Anglican clergy who have a particular dislike of their colleagues and will mix with anybody but their <laughs> colleagues. But let's take a different perspective and say society appears to be experiencing more acute problems with unhappiness, loneliness, depression, anxiety, addictive disorders, eating disorders than at any time in the past. And we call this mental health problems. And the churches aren't talking about it because I get the impression they are happier talking about the structural problems of the economy, our relationships with Europe, yep. or their outdated and boring concepts of social justice. And they can't really do anything about it. But when it comes to helping people with the strains and stresses of everyday life, they're, I'm not going to say nowhere to be found, but often nowhere to be found. 
And the striking thing is, is that if you look at, well, who is to be found there? What groups are in that space? And very often, it's kind of soft-pedaled religiosity, but, I mean, mindfulness is a very good example. Um, or all these sort of apps, or this kind of whole self-help, mind-body-spirit. If you go into Waterstones or Blackwells, religion is now sort of half a shelf. Mind-body-spirit. Absolutely, With all sorts yes. Yes. of new-agey metaphysics. This doesn't have to all hang together because it's all very sort of... What... And actually, new, new Age, I think, I think it's time we dumped the phrase New Age, which really was, was big in the 80s, but I know exactly what you're yeah. talking about. But not only that, if you go to the bookery section, if you go to the sports section, the physical fitness section particularly, yeah. you will find all sorts of therapeutic themes and therapeutic formulae running through it. So the notion of self-improvement, self-help, sorting out your life is implicit in so many books that are written today. And meanwhile, some churches make a stab at it and others don't bother. They just stick to their liturgical calendar and watch as the pew's empty. Yeah, so I suspect charismatic churches, and you're the expert on these, I suspect that they actually do. Oh, they do. One of the reasons that Pentecostal Christianity is so successful in somewhere like Latin America is that it addresses problems of unemployment, computer illiteracy, addiction, addiction, with great intensity, addictions of every type. It offers practical solutions to these problems at a time when the Catholic Church is still spouting the sort of nonsense that Pope Francis favours. And it's no wonder that people join these Pentecostal churches because a woman will say, well, they cured my husband of his alcoholism. Or they found my son a job. So on the one hand, we get cross with the churches for talking about big issues about which they know nothing. But on the other hand, they're failing to grapple with, if you like, the sort of local consequences of economic change, which are affecting people's mental and therefore spiritual well-being. You constantly see this with sort of prosperity gospel, you know, because if you go to someone like the Philippines or parts of Africa, parts of Latin America, there's this kind of clash between liberation theology-influenced mainstream churches trying to change the systems. Yeah. I think it's a very good thing that systems often need changing, but that the groups that are growing, either, you know, Pentecostal churches or, you know, other new religious movements... Or charismatic wings of the mainstream churches get lumped together as kind of prosperity gospel. But actually it's addressing people's individual situations rather than saying that the poor have this innate dignity and voice that we all need to learn from. They're saying it would be better if your husband kicked his alcoholic problem, got a job, or be better if your kids weren't in gangs. And what gets dismissed as a kind of a self-improvement packaged kind of product actually is being cast as a spiritual issue as almost a fight over you know we used to talk about care of souls or spiritual warfare and i think in some of these groups this is precisely how things like mental health things like addiction are seen well let's look at two famous churches in london that happen to be next door to each other and which on the on the face well, of things couldn't, couldn't have less in common. The London Oratory yeah. with its wonderful Baroque ceremonial and Holy Trinity Brompton with its 
happy-clappy, as people say. Well, there's not actually that much of it, but there's lots of soft rock music. And lots of, of, lots I go of to the I've, cafe underneath. Go, the cafe underneath go, is lovely. Go to one of the services. You'll be surprised. Flat how, white. And, no, the cafe yeah. underneath is absolutely excellent. And in fact, I went to mass at the one and had coffee at the other. I suspect it works better that way than the other way around. Yeah. But the point is... As, as it happens, Father Julian and Nicky Gumble get on, get on very well together. They're both outstanding Christians in my experience. But both of them, in their very different ways, these two religious communities, help people with their everyday lives, yeah. take a real interest in people's spiritual development and relate them to the world in which they operate. For years I thought HTB, Holy Trinity Bompton, this very successful evangelical church, was a sort of cult. And I think there was a time when maybe... It did exert too much social control over the lives of people. But I think that's in the past now. And it seems to me that we're too ready to dismiss these things as cult-like, as a way of mocking something that works and distracting attention from the fact that the old formulae don't work anymore. The old parish brace formula is effectively dead. And I'll give you an example of it. I know of one person suffering from cancer who attends their church regularly and the, the clergyman has not asked once how they're doing. Yeah. Not once. So something is broken. Does your very extensive research into churches in Britain and America suggest that something is broken in the way I'm suggesting? Yeah, I think, I think again, this isn't just about churches. You'll certainly be familiar, many of the listeners will be familiar with sort of social capital and Robert Putnam and this idea that, you know, it's not just churches that don't have community, it's yeah. bowling leagues. Or it's, you know, it's bowling alone. Civic associations, because, bowling because alone. Because you notice how many people went bowling on their yeah, own. Yeah, and what you see is the, the churches that are bucking this trend in many ways are copying what used to be the old parish model where and this didn't matter if you were catholic or you're anglican or you're methodist you'd have your own kind of yes religious services and yes sort of religious activities but you'd have this whole social structure built around it of a boys brigade or bingo night darts leagues and they're this... creating a subculture Absolutely. that used to exist naturally, naturally used to because occur naturally. it used to yes, exist yes. naturally and this you get you see this with um hasidic jews in new york because they have to walk to synagogue on a Saturday. They all have to live near the synagogue, which means that, you know, they tend to congregate in areas where lots of other Hasidic Jews live. And you keep these subcultures there. It doesn't work nearly so well in suburbs when you're all driving and then you're driving away to do something else and that kind of stuff. Um, but, but what, I mean, uh, megachurches are the classic example of this. At just the time that the old natural bubbles, if you like, were breaking down because of suburbanization, they were particularly targeting this kind of rootless new suburbanites and trying to provide not just these kind, you know, you think of a mega church as this everyone together on a Sunday in a big glitzy auditorium, you know, which, which is true. But throughout the week, you'll be portioned off into your Bible study men's group in your particular neighbourhood. Absolutely. And the Mormons do this really well with singles like if you're a single mormon in your 20s you have a particular singles ward that you belong to that has its own program of activities and you know the idea is to stop you being single. and we're not just talking about this country because i remember no, no, visiting no. the yoido full gospel church in seoul yeah. in south korea which at the time may still be was the world's largest church 
obviously a gigantic building yeah. and gigantic, rather weird services, Pentecostal. But everybody belonged to a small group. Yeah. And there is a certain power in small groups, isn't yeah. there? I remember reading a book called The Power of Small Groups. Yeah, there's been all sorts of yes, stuff exactly. around. But these small groups don't seem to naturally occur in mainstream denominations. Yeah. And the clergy don't seem interested in starting them, getting them going. No. And I'm sorry to come back to this question, but I think it's something to do with the bland featurelessness of so many people who become clergy in the mainstream denominations. Well, they're, they're tremendously risk-averse, shy and aloof at the same time. This is an awful sort of group libel, but do you know what I mean, don't you? I, I, I do, and particularly because I know that if I'd ever pursued a vocation, I'd be like that. I wouldn't. You'd be brilliant, oh, actually. That'd be Stephen. dreadful. I'd be really, really good. If the Catholic Church has married like, priests, which I, I think it ought to, you should get ordained. I don't like talking to people, that's the trouble. Don't like really? me- I don't like meeting people. I don't like talk. I always say this to my students, and I've realised and that whenever I lecture, and I have a room full of students who I know and who know me, and I just kind of I tend to wander around and end up, you know, at the back talking to a wall, and it's a it's a nervous thing. I don't like talking to. I don't like meeting people. I don't like small talk. I'm more right if I do know people, but I don't really like. I don't like people. I'm in the wrong job, really. <laughs> Look, I'm going to thank the famously <laughs> taciturn <laughs> Professor Stephen Bullivant. Taciturn and misanthropic Stephen Bullivant, who, by the way, is the author of Mass Exodus, the most brilliant work of sociology of Christianity to appear in Britain for many years. Read it. <laughs>